Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in language. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns. I'm an assistant professor of communication and rhetoric at State University of New York Geneseo, and I am so excited today to be interviewing Sharon Kirsch and her new book, Gertrude Stein and the Reinvention of Rhetoric. In this book, Kirsch takes Gertrude Stein, who is uh, traditionally a classical composition figure of modernist and postmodernist composition and writing, and reassesses this iconic literary figure as a major 20th century rhetorician, not a spin doctor, as the word rhetoric might suggest to some, but rather the book discusses Stein as a writer who reinterpreted classical traditions of rhetoric to which she was heir, even as she anticipated what was to come. As Sharon and I discuss in this interview, the thing about Stein is that she actually follows the principles of classical rhetoric very well, invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. But instead of looking at those things like a grammar, a rule book for how one creates language and meaning and memory, Stein treats these as a heuristic, or rather a discovery tool through which she can make language do new and exciting things. Stay tuned and learn more about Gertrude Stein and the Reinvention of Rhetoric by Sharon Kirst from the University of Alabama Press. Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns. I am your hostess with the mostest, and I am very excited today to be joined by Sharon Kirsch, she, they pronouns. Uh, Sharon is author of this fabulous book we'll be discussing today, Gertrude Stein and the Reinvention of Rhetoric published by the University of Alabama Press in 2014. Sharon, are you there? Do you want to say hello? I am. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Good. And, um, you know, a little bit of context, maybe what your hobbies are, where you work, what you do for fun. What do you think? So I am an as- associate professor of English and rhetorical studies at Arizona State University. And I'm leading a kind of double life right now. I'm also the director of research for an organization I helped to found called Save Our Schools Arizona. And we have been fighting the privatization of public education in our state for the past few years. Such important work. I mean, I'm up in New York and we're sort of facing a similar thing. But, um, you know, after we do the book, maybe we can talk a few minutes about about your work you're doing there for the listeners. Sure. Great. So Gertrude Stein and the Reinvention of Rhetoric is an absolutely... If, what, what what I love about this book is I'm sort of a half literary composition person and a half rhetoric, public speaking, persuasion person. And very often those two worlds are kept separate, probably for disciplinary interests. And this book weaves them together in just such a fascinating way. And when you get done with this book, like if you are a lover of language, this is a book that is so careful and also invigorating with the way that it treats language that like I can, it's hard to describe an academic book as a page turner. But uh, if I were going to, I mean, this one was definitely there. And just by way of introduction, so will you tell, because I'm actually going to talk about the organization of the book first, because it's very unique and very clever. And even though it seems like it would be the least sexy part of the book, in this book, it's actually pretty sexy. Will you tell 
the listener uh, maybe a little bit about Gertrude Stein and then a little bit about what the canons of rhetoric are if they're not familiar with them. And then I thought I would actually read your table of contents because I love it so much. Okay. And then we can jump into the uh, second chapter, Suppose a Grammar Uses Invention. So you go ahead and just take that in whatever right. direction you want. Well, so first of all, I'm super excited to hear that you also kind of span that divide across literature and composition, because one of the things that drew me to this project to begin with is I went to graduate school to study literature, but I've always been really, really interested in language. And so I started getting interested in uh, women rhetoricians in the 19th century. And there weren't any classes to take in rhetoric in my literature PhD program. So I became a sort of autodidact and started reading, you know, old grammar books and classical rhetoric and things like that. And so really, I think um, there are historical reasons we can talk about for this division between composition um, and literature, rhetoric and literature. But one of the reasons that I became so interested in Gertrude Stein is because she um, she doesn't like to recognize any divisions. She likes to kind of call into question and collapse all kinds of binaries. And she grew up at a time and went to college at, at Harvard, the Harvard Annex, it was called when she was first there. And while she was there, it changed to Radcliffe College for women. But when she was there ways of thinking about language were very, very different from the way most of us grew up taking our composition 101 and 102 sequence uh, and being in the kind of literature departments that we grew up in in the late 20th and early 21st century. So Stein really collapses those, um, those distinctions in really interesting ways. And so for people who don't know about Gertrude Stein, she uh, went to college at Harvard. She actually went to medical school for a few years at Johns Hopkins. And then she left the United States and moved to Paris and lived all of her adult life in France, uh, came back to the United States for the first time 30 years later. And in Paris, she was friends with anyone and everyone who was anybody. So she was friends with Picasso before Picasso was famous and Matisse and the photographer Man Ray and the sculptor Joe Davidson, who the cover of my book has um, a head of Stein that Joe Davidson sculpted. And she was friends with philosophers like Bertrand Russell. And she knew Sylvia Beach who ran Shakespeare and Company bookstore. And all of these people would come over to her salon, her famous salon at um, on her in her apartment on Rue de Fleurou in, in Paris. And it was such an interesting kind of cultural milieu. So I think, you know, aside from the fact that that's interesting, and for those of your listeners who've seen movies like Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen's movie, there's scenes from Stein's salon there. But I think all along, Stein has always been in her thinking and in her writing, very interdisciplinary right from uh, from the get-go. And so taking this iconic literary figure, because she truly is uh, an icon of literary modernism, and thinking about her through the lens of rhetoric, and especially through the very traditional canons of rhetoric, um, just made a lot of sense to me. She seemed like this perfect figure to bring these worlds together. Well, so I can say a little bit, if you want, about the canons. Yeah, of I, think that, I think that'd be a good jump before we get into the book. 
Okay. So, um, so maybe one of the most famous classical works of rhetoric is Aristotle's rhetoric. And it's often taught and read, but it wasn't until, um, and he, of course, Aristotle was Greek. It wasn't until Cicero, Roman rhetorician, divided uh, rhetoric into five canons. And the five canons are invention, uh, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. And so in a classical frame, those canons are kind of defined as Invention is the first canon where you you kind of come up with heuristics or ideas, ways of sort of thinking about how to be persuasive and how to frame your argument. And then arrangement, of course, is how how do I put it together? What order do I do I make my points to be persuasive? Style for the Greeks could either be the sort of style you would use in your delivery or the the kind of style you used in the phrasing and the diction. Style becomes very, very important canon at the end of the 19th and into the 20th century, especially for literary people. Uh, and then there's memory. So, of course, in ancient Greeks, Greece, um, you know, you have to commit everything to memory. We don't have teleprompters and stuff like that. So they did. They developed very elaborate schemes and mnemonics, ways of helping your brain remember things, so that you could then deliver the final canon. You know, your your speech in the most effective way to persuade your audience. That is a fabulous summary. You've clearly. <laughs> clearly practice this. All right. So now that we know the five canons, what's really... And so first of all, for people listening who maybe aren't familiar with Gertrude Stein, one of the things that you kind of have to know going into the book is that Stein is not exactly what you would consider a, like a classicist, right? No. Yeah. So do you want to say a little bit about that? Because it's, yeah. it's the way in which Klein... It's the way in which Stein both emerges as exactly what I thought she was before I started the book, and then also something totally different that really makes this book tick. Yeah. So for people who haven't read Stein, if you pick up almost any work, literally almost any work with one exception by Stein, um, people, she drives people completely crazy. And when I teach her, my students really struggle. There's lots of repetition. Her narratives are, if they're in any way linear, it's like her, her texts don't make sense in a way um, that we sort of commonly think of making sense. And it's not just like reading a hard poem and trying to decipher it. Stein really breaks things syntactically. Sometimes when she's writing, rather than uh, choose a succession of words in a way that we would when we're putting together a sentence, you know, you're going to have a noun and a verb and a prepositional phrase or whatever. Stein will choose a word based on the sound of the one that comes before it. So our, your experience of reading Stein, it's really hard. And she even says in different interviews, I say this to my students a lot. She has a phrase where she says, oh, how can you bother with me? And she'll stick that phrase just in the middle of different things that she's written. So she has a famous work called Stanzas and Meditation and the book that I was really obsessed with called How to Write and a book of poetry called Tender Buttons that sometimes compared to a kind of cubist style where, where the, the syntax, the images are very kind of broken up. And so reading Stein is it's demanding in a very different way. 
She's very interested in playing with language in all kinds of different ways. So I give the example to my students where if you took a kid, a little kid, maybe like a three-year-old kid or four-year-old kid to a park, a playground, and you know, they've never been to a playground before. You don't have to give them a list of things to do. You know, first you walk over to the swing, then you sit down on it. You know, the the kid, the kid doesn't need an explanation of what to do. They're just going to go over and rather than swinging on the swing, they might pick up the sand and put it all over the seat or, you know, they're just going to have fun. And so Stein wants us to think about language as something that's just fun where we don't have to follow the rules and we don't have to follow the sort of discursive worlds in which we've grown up in that make, make us think, oh, well, you have to do this or it's wrong if you do that or I have to say it like this. She wants to take all those kind of normative ways of thinking, or maybe we don't even think, we just sort of do it with language. She wants to kind of put a spotlight on those and ask us to not always be at the mercy of those rules uh, and regulations that surround writing. So many of them, we just fail to even recognize that we're following. And so she says, she gives the example of, she says, if you enjoy it, you understand it. So the same thing, like if the little kid who goes to the playground, they might not ever sit on a swing and swing the quote unquote right way, but they might have a blast at the park just playing. And so Stein wants us to think about language, about all the all those canons, invention, arranging style, all of that, in, in also in playful ways. And so same with the rules of grammar. You have to know the rules of grammar, but you don't necessarily always have to follow them just because that's what we're told we have to do. That point. So you make the point in the book that Stein sort of writes one handbook on language, which is both is and is not like the way we think of a handbook. And it's just called How to Write. And yeah. it is directly historically at the same time as this other book, uh, Edwin A. Abbott's How to Write Clearly. Yeah. Right? And that these two books are in conversation. And I just think it's always pretty funny that she just dropped any adjective and it was just like, nope, how to write. Not well, yep. not clearly. <laughs> just do it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so to that effect, so um, so what's really interesting about this book is that y- it's not as if Stein just has no logic. You are no. very careful about tracking the ways in which everything that Stein did across, oh, and you cover like, pr- I mean, pretty much everything I've ever read and then some does make sense. It's just that it, it make it, it is very careful about the way that it makes sense instead of just doing sort of what the rules would dictate. But it's not as if she just is a total linguistic anarchist, right? She's very intentional. Exactly. Very intentional. And you break up the reading across the five canons of rhetoric. And so I'll just read the table of contents because I love it so much. So chapter one is introduction, Gertrude Stein reinvents rhetoric. And then chapter two is suppose a grammar uses invention, which we'll talk about in a second. That's your invention chapter. And then compositional form after arrangement, which I really like. And then Number four, chapter four is an, an exacting style. And I love that word exacting because that is that is what this is, exacting both in the sense of, of like tiresome and it requires a lot of you and also in the sense that it is very precise, just its precision may be coming from different motivations than we think of as like classical motivations. Uh, number five is troubling memory. 
right in there, you've got the the verb and the adjective to trouble memory, and also my memory is troubling me. And then chapter six, Gertrude Stein delivers. <laughs> Just so yeah. good. Yeah, and all of these are very clever. And I thought we'd start um, with the with the second chapter about the canon of invention. First of all, because I think invention is one of the hardest things to teach, and therefore we often kind of skip it as a canon. And then also. Yeah. This phrase that Stein uses that you pick up for this chapter, quote, suppose a grammar uses invention. So you don't want, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. And, and it's interesting that you ask about that because that literally was the hook for me into the whole project. So when Stein was going to college in the 1890s, it was just at the time that what we understand in the 20th and 21st century is that kind of shift between composition and rhetoric started to take hold. And, and she took something kind of like our composition 101, 102 sequence. It's kind of when that sequence started, mostly that started at Harvard and, you know, and now almost every college and university across the country, our students still take that sequence. Now, what was also happening in, in Abbott's book, How to Write Clearly, um, the ways of thinking about writing was just kind of reducing it to really understanding the rules of grammar. And we still kind of hear this today. We'll be like, oh, those, those kids, those students, they just can't write or they don't know their grammar rules. As if we could just take a list of, you know, you just have to memorize these 20 things and then you're going to be a great writer right? It doesn't work that way. Like you have to, you have to have a deeper, broader, uh, more complicated sense of language to be able to use it well and with facility. So when Gertrude Stein says, suppose a grammar uses invention, right? We think of grammar as just those rules. You just have to know, this is how I use a comma. This is how you use a colon, right? And and it's as if those rules don't have any invention. It's very black and white. You either do this or you don't, right? And so Stein says, wait a minute. What if we suppose that we could introduce invention, that first canon of rhetoric, into our ways of thinking about very static things like grammar? And so, um, and that line, of course, suppose a grammar uses invention, comes from, from how to write. And so that's kind of what, what kind of grounded it all or founded it all for me is really thinking about gra- even grammar as a place where we can discover things and invent things um, and, and make things happen in language in an active way rather than just kind of following the rules. Just, oh, this book is so good. Can you watch, also, have you read your Amazon reviews of this book? Uh, not recently, uh, no. I want to just rip the reviewer two's review up into tiny little pieces. I'm so. <laughs> so oh, I now have to go. Yeah, it, and it's the same thing we always get. Oh, un- unnecessary jargon and post, you know, all this stuff. But it, I mean, oh, you geez. are so careful with her. I tried so hard not to use jargon. Well, and you, right? and that's the thing is, it's not jargony. It's just she really makes you dig in your heels. Right. She's not going to give it to you. I mean, I mean, her language is not transparent. It's not meant for clarity. It's not ma- meant for immediate, you know, transmission. It, you are you have to sit there with it and work with it. 
and but but not but not in a like chaotic kind of I'm meaning okay. to frustrate you way. I mean, I come away from reading Stein like just feeling so energized about language. I just can't I can't read her fast, you know. Right, right. Yeah. And I think um you know, first of all, I'm not opposed to jargon. I mean, part of jargon, it's that's a sort of derogatory term for just having to actually know the vocabulary around your topic. And so sometimes that's hard when we're introduced to a new vocabulary or things that we're not that sure about. And I think academic writers struggle with that. But I tried really hard in my book not to just sort of drop terms or whatever without really trying to explain it. And I modeled that approach um, among uh, uh, on many things, but also on Stein, because she is really hard. Like, there is no doubt about it. You don't just sort of flip through a Stein book and be like, oh, okay. It She wants us to kind of bring our brain and our thinking and our willingness to question to the page, to the words, to everything we think we understand um, about language and storytelling and how all of that works. So now I'm going to have to go read that review. <laughs> it's not mean. It's just, well, and I'm, I'm going to write my review. So, well, it'll, it'll even itself out. Well, you know, it's interesting because I got, I got um, people, some very strict literary people were also critical of my book. They were basically like, how dare you take Stein, this great literary icon, and turn her into a rhetorician as if that would be a bad thing. <laughs> well, what's also great about this book is she's, she's funny. She's so funny. And you do a good job of kind of keeping her funny. And I mean, I don't know. Do you do you have any like great Stein quotes? Because one of the things maybe we should do for this interview is do you have any Stein stanzas or anything committed to memory that you want to recite? Because if not, uh, the the little introduction uh, stanza, I'm not a poet, so I don't really know what this is called. It's a blurb. Uh, for chapter two from How to Write is really fabulous. And we could read that to the audience, but I want them to hear some Stein because I think that that's important. Sure. Yeah. And, and committing Stein to memory is really hard. So yeah. oh, I'll just read that. Yeah. Um, if you have it in front of you, the chapter two supposed grammar uses invention that starts with the phrase, uh, successions of words are so agreeable. Yeah. And I love that line. Yes. So you know, for Stein, even though things are hard, it doesn't mean they can't also be fun. No. It's and so when she says successions of words are so agreeable, it is about this. Grammar is a conditional expanse. A grammar has been called a grammar of diagram. This is not to be selfish. A grammar has been called a list of what it is to be done with it. The question is, if you have a vocabulary, have you any need of grammar except for explanation? That is the question. Communication and direction, repetition and intuition, that is the question. Returned for grammar. Suppose a grammar uses invention. I'm just gonna leave that there. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Yeah. What else do you want? Yeah, I know. I love it. And I think, I think when you, the, at least for me, being so immersed in Stein and in this book for so many years, it's kind of the thing where, or, or I don't know if this analogy will work for listeners, but I sometimes use the analogy or I show my students one of Picasso's uh, paintings, you know, one of his Cubist paintings. So it's like you look at it. And it takes a minute to be like, oh, there is a figure. Oh, she is seated. Oh, it is a woman, right? So it that sort of process of kind of coming 
to understand something and things kind of come into clarity. Um, that is often my experience of reading Stein and many of her, um, and, and she puts things in the writing to kind of help you with that. So when she says, suppose a grammar uses invention, or she often uses the word think, think of this, think of that. She's, she's literally telling you, the reader, like, just stop and think about this for a second, right? And try to just give your brain a moment to, to let it take shape. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can kind of make a little sense of something. Sometimes you can't until you're 20 more pages in. And then you're like, oh, okay. When she was saying, think about this or think about grammar as a folder or grammar as a conditional expanse, I bet that's connected to what she's saying here. So that process of coming to know something is, she wants us to be really aware of that. And so another quote I'll read you from, she wrote a series of, um, or she gave a series of lectures in America, they're called, and one of them is called Poetry and Grammar. And she says, a long, complicated sentence should force itself upon you and make you know yourself knowing it. Right? So that, yeah, the make yourself knowing yourself in or right no knowing the sentence is to know yourself as opposed to the sentence yeah. leaving you unchanged in the process of reading exactly and, and and that that process of knowing it's not something that just happens right like you want to sort of be aware of how your brain your mind your heart like how you're working through something that's difficult to try to come to some clarity or understanding about it or crafting some meaning through it. So rather than somebody just giving that to us, saying, here, this is what this means, or, oh, you just have to decipher this poem. My students think, oh, I just don't get it. I don't get what this poem means. But that's that's kind of the wrong question to ask for Stein. Stein wants that process of knowing and coming to understand something to be something that we're aware of and, and learn how to cultivate. And I will say, you know, I, I have come to Stein sort of haphazardly throughout the years, just as people have referenced her, because I wanted to read some literature. And reading your book about Stein made me able to go back and not not because I understood her better, but because I had a different perspective from which to engage her. Yeah. And I think that's part of what's frustrating is that this is this is not a book in which Stein just becomes immediately clear and okay, now Stein is thoroughly interpreted and I understand Stein but rather it's like a new guide to reading her that just creates yeah. as many questions as it solves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, so I talk a little bit in the book about Kairos yes, and a Kairos based discourse. So Kairos is a Greek term for time. So we might be more familiar with chron chronology with chronological time, right? That's, sequential, beginning, middle, end. Kairos is another way of thinking about time. And that is like recognizing a moment, like what's available in that moment, just the, the perfect moment, the right moment, an opportune moment for something um, to happen or something to, um, to take advantage of something in that moment. And so I use, in the book, I use... Um, 
Sharon Crowley and Deborah Hahi have a great book for anybody who's kind of interested in rhetoric, but is not super familiar with it. They have a book called Ancient Rhetorics um, for Contemporary Students. Yeah, it's so good. It's so well written, but they define a Kairos based discourse that when we think about language through Kairos, through a Kairos based discourse, it's not about seeking certainty prior to writing, but it thinks about writing or using language, writing and speaking um, as an opportunity for exploring issues and for making knowledge. So it's not taking a piece of knowledge that's already out there in the world, right? It's, it's thinking differently about any moment that we're in, we can use that to make something new, to discover something, to invent something. That's where that canon of invention comes in. Invention is, um, in my way of thinking, in in my way of reading Stein, a very Kairos-based way of thinking about language or discourse. And I think one of the ways um, I try to talk to my students about this, it's kind of the difference between if you're going to write a paper and you you come up with your thesis first, and so then you've got the thesis, you know what you're trying to prove, and you write the paper to all fit into that thesis, right? And then that's a good skill to have, right? Like you you figure out how to prove your argument. If you know your thesis, you're going to go back to your texts or whatever your topic is and find the examples that are going to help you prove it. And But that's not a Kairos-based discourse. A chi- th- using Kairos means you really don't know where you're going to end up. You're not exactly sure where these texts or questions are going to take you exactly. And so it's a more open-ended process where you're willing to kind of discover things along the way or rearrange things as you come to understand them differently. Um, And so I think that kind of way of thinking about language is very Steinian. She doesn't want to have the answers at the beginning and then just hand them over to us. She wants us to be able to work through issues, ideas, and find ways to reconnect with language, to reposition ourselves with words and syntax and grammar, and then to be proactive in doing something with that. So I really, I just love the way Crowley and Hahi talk about a Kairos-based discourse. And it lines up, I think, with um, two things in your book. One is that you use the word heuristic a lot. And, and at one point, um, I, I have a note that you defined a heuristic, that's H-E-U-R-I-S-T-I-C, as a productive art that creates the possibility for new forms and ways of thinking to be created, challenged, or ignored. And so, uh, so the canons, in fact, become less categories of rules or guidelines or parts of a speech for you than they are heuristics, because we can use invention as a heuristic, we can use grammar as a heuristic for creating new ways of thinking. Yes. And that, yeah. that also lines up, I think, with uh, with the kairos and the, and the temporality with what you talk about as Stein, as a writer who sort of works in the continuous present. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, of course. I should have brought that up. Yeah. So Stein is just obsessed with what she calls the continuous present. And she's also completely obsessed with history. And so some literary critics and and scholars have sort of taken her out of the 19th century and talked about her as this kind of quintessential 20th century modernist. 
And I really think that's kind of a misreading of Stein. She's always very, very interested in how our physical location, our, our geographies, and our histories, both our personal family histories and then our state and national histories, um, influence or define the way we see and experience the world. So she has a, a long work called The Geographical History of America. And she is never wanting us to forget that we're always in a continuous present, right? We're in this moment, and now we're in this moment, and now we're in this moment, right? And we're always... So again, it's sort of thinking about time in terms of kairos, not only chronologically. And so for Stein, the continuous present is this very dynamic, open um, moment where where we have lots of options for how we use language. It's always situated. We can't ever get out of history, but we don't have to. So, so in some ways, the way we use language is always deeply rooted in how we were educated, the families we come from, the sort of syntaxes we've grown up with. Like we can't, you can't just sort of break from that and pretend it never happened. But at the same time, Stein says, she doesn't want that history and that foundation to be the only way we experience the world and language. And so this idea of the continuous present is taking advantage of the right, literally the right here, right now, what's happening in this very moment and using that as an opportunity to understand our histories and our possibilities for the future differently. It's, it's an incredibly valuable, it makes uh, Brad Vivian has a book, uh, the, the public forgetting book that has a similar kind of phrase, but I'm, I'm lost for right now. But yeah, it is that idea that it's not that you're not constrained by temporality, but just that this idea that past and present are, are the two ways that you get to think about life and language are very limiting, but you do have to work hard to get out of them because they're so inscribed. And they're like gender, right? It's so inscribed in the way that we write and talk that you really have to think inventionally um, and know your stuff, right? I mean, part of the reason Stein is a great writer is she's like Harvard educated. I mean, that's not an accident. Yeah. Right. So even though it's the same education yeah. that constrains her and that she wants to break against, it's also the very thing that gave her the tools in some ways to do that work. So it's very interesting the way that that like the rules of language get played with in this book. Yes. Yeah. Very fun, I think, fun and generative ways that both acknowledge what's come before but without, not in a determinative, like in a way that determines the future, yeah. right? She wanted to be right. able to intervene. And right. Leave, leave it a little bit open-ended, but also on a, on a clear trajectory though, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just a wonderful book. And I'm so sorry to say this, but we're actually having a lot of technical difficulties on my end. So oh, no. I'm actually going to ask us to wrap up a little early and then I can follow up with you if you want to do more Stein or if maybe you want to come back and talk about what you're doing with Save Our Schools. Okay. But for now, do you want to tell us a little bit about Save Our Schools before we sign off? Because I did want to make sure that we circled back to that before we – and I'm sure. cutting it short just because I'm getting all kinds of beeps and I don't want to have the interview go bunk. So I'd like to okay. save what we've got so far at least. Well, I'll just say really briefly. I mean, of course, one of my interests in language um, also goes to public discourse and the way that we talk shapes the worlds in which we live. And so part of what's been happening in the United States in the past 30 years, and those of you who have been following anything with the U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, know 
that our public education systems in the United States are under attack far more than you likely realize. So the organization I helped to found, Save Our Schools Arizona, um, stopped a bill that went to our legislate in through our legislature that would have made these things they call them this sounds good right empowerment scholarship accounts and it would have been basically giving public taxpayer dollars to kids to use at private schools or for homeschooling with almost no accountability for where that money goes and of course in Arizona we're 47th in the country for teacher pay for per pupil spending our public schools are desperately struggling and so to take even more money out of our public schools and privatize our public schools like that um, is incredibly detrimental. There are national um, billionaires like the Koch brothers and, of course, Betsy DeVos, who have a very systematic plan to dismantle public education in the United States. So I really encourage listeners to find out what's going on in your state. There are literally only two or three states in the United States that are not touched by this kind of privatization. And so you can go to Save Our Schools Arizona's website. We've got tons of information, uh, but I encourage people to pay attention to how we're talking about public education and our public discourse these days. Yeah, I, it, yeah, it is so important. I hate that we're cutting this conversation short, but one thing we could do is you and I could talk about um, what kind of books you're reading that are great for the audience on this, and maybe we could get back together and do uh, do another interview with a book author that's also working on the the public schools issue. And maybe sure, that would be yeah. a way we could bring more awareness to this issue through the New Books Network. Yeah. yeah. All right, good. Well, we will uh, to, we will table that for to be decided. And I will just mm-hmm. once again let the listeners know I'm sorry that we're cutting this short because tr- trust me when I say we have not even scratched the surface. But I know. You are Thank welcome. You. Yeah, no, it was fabulous. And in some ways I don't hate this because it leaves people wanting more. But also there was just – we didn't get to talk about delivery. I won't, okay, I won't talk about it. Um, I know. But <laughs> – we may be back for part two. Who knows? But in the meantime, everyone out there should absolutely pick up a copy of Gertrude Stein and the Reinvention of Rhetoric from the University of Alabama Press. Uh, the price is now down in the nice, yummy $30 range for the Kindle version on Amazon. You can also buy it directly through the press, which I always like. And if you don't want a copy for yourself, always encourage you to go to your local library, whether that's a school library or a public library, and see if you can put in a request for them to have it on the shelves so that many, many more people can benefit from this book. So thanks again, Sharon, for joining us. I'm sorry again about the technical issues, but you know, that's the oh, life of the, of the nonprofit podcaster. And yes. no, it's been a pure pleasure. I really yeah. appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll, ch- we'll touch base soon. Okay. okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.